0: I'm Joanna Fortune, psychotherapist and author of the 15 Minute Parenting series of books. Welcome to my 15 Minute Parenting podcast, where I take a common parenting struggle and break it down with practical, playful solutions. Let's get going. A recent ESRI report here in Ireland showed that school is a much bigger influence on teenage behaviour than where teenagers come from um, their communities their backgrounds and I thought this along with you know other fascinating findings in that report um, in terms of the risk and protective factors in adolescent behavior there was really interesting and a standout of that report the report was written by Dr. Smith and Armady. Um, it's well worth a look um, this ESRI report that came out this month May 2021. You know, one aspect that particularly jumped out at me when I was reading it, it didn't surprise me, but I really felt was something worth spotlighting and has inspired this this podcast this week. And that's the importance of the quality of relationships with teachers to support learning outcomes for children and teenagers. I mean, at this stage, if you listen to this podcast regularly, or if you've read my books in the 15 Minute Parenting series, you'll be familiar with me saying You know, things like our young, middle childhood age children, you know, they look to us, they're safe, trusted adults in charge for their emotional and behavioral cues. And, you know, that is mostly us parents, but I also see our teenagers teachers in a central role in this regard. The parent teenager and the teacher teenager relationship, I believe, should be invested in, should be nurtured and strongly supported throughout adolescent development and throughout the journey through secondary school. I don't mean to say that it's not important in primary school, it really is, but I think it's particularly important in teenage years. I read um, a while back a really powerful opinion piece that was in the New York Times. This is, you know, some time ago now. Um, It was written by David Brooks, who himself is an ex-teacher and now journalist. And he refers to the work of, you know, cognitive scientists like Antonio Damasio and people like that. But he's talking basically about research that shows us that emotion is not the opposite of reason. In fact, emotion is essential to reason. And I thought that's really interesting because often we talk about people being too emotional to learn and too hot-headed to learn and actually emotion fuels reason and that's really important for us to hold in mind through all of this Um, I also think you know what comes out of all of the research that's out there and also you know lived experience of working with teenagers and I deliver a number of talks you know in schools be that to young people to parents or indeed to teachers is that having a strong emotional connection with those that we learn from supports the integration of the learning and it primes the brain to accept to integrate to process to make sense of that information that we're taking in and in this way emotional connection is serving as a motivational force in the whole experience of learning precisely because how we feel about something and how we feel about someone informs how we know what to attune to connect with in other words and what we should care about and ascribe value to it helps us to assign a value system to what and who is worth remembering so if we want our teenagers to learn give them something to care about give them something to feel passionate about and then they're going to learn in its truest sense And this is about holistic learning, not just cognitive learning. You know, holistic learning stands to aid all of us and our teenagers, you know, in in light of the context I'm talking about today. But all of us can learn from this. You know, holistic learning is going to aid us in all facets of our lives to help to build an emotional language and emotional resilience that will help us in our relationships with tougher emotions, help us how to master and deal with things like anxiety, fear and worry. You know, often feeling states that travel through the trajectory of adolescence and things that teenagers, not all of them, but some teenagers can struggle to gain mastery over those tension-rousing experiences. So that kind of investing in holistic learning is going to really, really support that piece. And nurturing our children, our teenagers, social and emotional brain is crucial for all learning experiences. And I just think that's so important to take in and to really reflect on how our educational system is structured and how we invest in and value those classroom and school relationships between teachers and students. I often think again, you know, about how we learn and how the brain responds in different environments. And what we know is that fear and anxiety keep our teenagers suspended in a state of anticipatory arousal. And what that means and looks like is that we become like emotional meerkats. You know, our focus is darting around, seeking signs that basically reinforce how we're currently feeling so that we can feel right and justified in feeling the way we do. And I think that's something that we should all pause and acknowledge and relate to because who doesn't love to be right you know don't we all love to be right about how we're feeling you know if you've ever had a bruise on your hand and it it hurts you know it hurts but you keep touching it to make sure it still hurts we're constantly seeking that reinforcement that we're right to think and feel the way that we do and in this heightened state of anticipatory arousal that is emotional arousal it's very difficult to take in and process new cognitive information So fear and anxiety compromise capacity to learn. That is not to be confused with a reflection on anybody's intelligence. This is about capacity to learn, to take in and process new cognitive information and to make healthy, informed choices and decisions. We know that fear and anxiety compromise those facets for us. And we know that secure, healthy, happy, emotional connection fuels those facets for us and again it's evidence of why we should be encouraging emotional connection in our classrooms in that same you know new york times article um, that i mentioned david brooks refers to other research work carried out by suzanne dicker in new york university and her research showed that when classes are going well classes in school, I mean, when they're going well, the student brain activity aligns with and synchronizes with the teacher's brain activity. And this can have both a positive and negative effect on the student's mental health, depending on how it goes and their capacity to learn. Because in good times and bad, teachers and students emotionally co-regulate each other. And yet, in spite of knowing all of this and even more research coming out in May, you know, here in an Irish context, we are still slow to talk about the mental health of our teachers and the impact that, you know, things like performance or exam measures, the impact of overcrowded classrooms, the impact of, you know, lower levels of funding and resources, the impact that all of that has on teachers' mental well-being and their capacity to be emotionally available to their students. You know, we talk about teenagers' mental health, we talk about children's mental health, we talk about what you know, teenagers and even young children need in school, particularly after this pandemic year that we've had. But that's only going to be effective if we're also mindful of the impact those same circumstances have on our teachers' well-being. Because of that privileged position our teachers are in to influence positively, ideally, but to have an influence either way on our kids. And I think that's something that we should address. I think it's something that we should look at. You know, teachers are interfacing with students who are bringing all of life's complexities and challenges to school with them right there into the classroom. Teachers are expected to be able to co-regulate and teach large groups of young people who are bubbling and simmering with these challenges and do so while maintaining high standards of learning and ultimately results, exam results. You know, I, I think it's critical that we attend to our teachers' emotional well-being, provide the kind of, you know, psychosocial supports, you know, supervision, debriefing, processing spaces so that they can achieve Tune to and co-regulate with their students and you know then these high standards of learning can actually be achieved and maintained within the connection. Social and emotional learning is not yet another thing we should be asking of our teachers because it should actually be at the center of our school communities because it's not just the relationship between teachers And students that arise in these reports, it's also the relationship that parents have with teachers and that we see each other as collaborators in the best interests of our children rather than competitors or being on different pages. And it's just something I would love to see prioritized because we know how effective it is on well, learning outcomes, of course, but also the social and emotional development of our kids. And for me, that's always worth doing. I do think there's a couple of activities, playful activities that could be, you know, used at home, but also could be used in a classroom setting in case there are any teachers listening at the moment. One of these activities is, I mean, I call it popcorn storytelling. I'm sure there's lots of names for it. But popcorn because basically you start with the kernel of a story and then it develops into something bigger I think this is fun for all ages it's about how you do it how you deliver it and how you bring it to life um you're going you know while it is suitable for all ages you will be able to grow the story up more as they hit adolescence and introduce more advanced themes and expectations of a longer or more detailed narrative from it now this is going to work with just two of you like if you're a parent listening and want to do this at home this will totally work but it is also one of those the more the merrier so it transfers really nicely into a classroom now i do think that while it is more fun with more people involved um you know i i've done it in pairs plenty of times so please do see that it's possible there too what you're going to do is invite whoever is at hand both of you or many more of you invite whoever's at hand to sit together don't make this a deal breaker, though, because you can play it if everyone is scattered across chairs and sofas at home. If in school, you will be all sitting in the same room. but And once you can still hear each other, that's the main thing. So you start by giving a starting sentence. For instance, you might say, once upon a time, a tiny brown mouse... Okay, and then you're something like that. And then you're going to have each person add to the story based on what the previous person has added. If it's just the two of you, you're going to do one sentence each and pass the narrative back and forth. But if it's one that you're doing as a family or if you're doing it in a classroom setting, it's going to encourage lots of free association because that story is going to build and build. The important thing is, is that you follow the cue of the person who went before you. Um, It's a great way that whole free association of what could happen next, you Know, takes us out of our heads it puts us down into our bodies in these now moments and it also calls for and strengthens our capacity for active listening for reading and responding to the cues of others and i do love to start with once upon a time because i think once upon a time gives permission for anything to happen in the story um, so if something is silly you know if someone introduces a silly idea or a concept just go with it because anything's possible in once upon a time I also think there's another activity that you could do um, that's about heighten- heightening and strengthening emotional awareness. So for this one, you start by giving everybody involved a plain sheet of paper with a variety of It could be emojis printed or drawn on, or you can use one of those emoji ink stamp sets if you have it, or stickers. These are widely available. As I said, though, you can just draw them on or print it. And you then simply read out a variety of emotion-activating situations. Or, and this is actually how I do it in groups, if I'm honest with you, as I write them out on larger sheets of paper, like, you know, maybe flip chart paper or poster board, I write out, you know, emotion activating situations, and then I spread them around on the table or floor so that everybody can walk around and read them to themselves. Of course, you can read them aloud if anyone has any literacy or learning considerations, but basically it's read. And then there's a couple of ways of tracking how each scenario makes people feel. Either they note down beside the printed or drawn emojis with a tick and reference the scenario A, B, C or D, which emoji they line up with. Or if you're using stickers or stamps, you can add a sticker or stamp to the sheets of paper that are gathered around. Okay, so you're basically saying, how does the scenario make you feel? And you're using those emojis um, as your way of expressing it. If you're doing it in a classroom, it's definitely easier to spread those scenarios out on bits of paper and give them little stickers or something that they add to the scenario. And then you can capture the overall feeling in the room about it at the end. And that is the aim here, you know, to capture the very first feeling that is evoked by reading or hearing the scenario, because being able to capture and identify our feelings as the they are activated is a step towards improving emotional fluency. Another clear benefit of this is that being able to very quickly identify our emotions as they are cued helps to relax the amygdala, you know, that is the feeling emotional center of the brain from emotionally overfiring or prematurely triggering those fight, flight, freeze responses. And then you can choose how much further you want to take this activity. Um, again, I'm thinking you can do this at home, but you can also do it in a classroom. So you in a classroom, you might want to sit and share, you know, everybody's thoughts on what came up in relation to each scenario scenario or one scenario in particular, Um, you know, if there was very strong feelings one way or the other or a split that the room is feeling very divided on a scenario, that would be a nice one that would spark discussion and conversation. You could invite everybody to share what they found You know, surprising about the collective feelings in the room, but avoid slipping into judgment because, you know, you can also share how you feel. Gosh, this really surprised me that you all thought this was okay or you all thought this was not okay. But you do that in I'm surprised, but I'm not judging way. And you can look together at where you felt the same about something and where your feelings didn't align and then share something of that together. So there's a lovely way of taking this further that supports emotional language and sharing both at home and in the classroom. And again, I think that's always worth doing. You know, you can only benefit from having a rich emotional language, but I also think it will help fuel that all-important connection that's going to underpin learning outcomes. Thank you for listening. I'd love if you could leave a positive review, share this with a friend or a few friends, or even subscribe to the podcast. It really helps others to find it and helps with visibility online. You can also follow me on Instagram at Joanna Fortune or on Twitter at the Joanna Fortune. No E at the end of that. Tune in next time for more 15-Minute Parenting.